welcome to Darkgate Horror Podcast, episode 14. This episode will discuss zombies and myth in film. I'll be discussing the films Fido and 28 Days Later in full detail, so this is a spoiler alert. The discussion will continue in episode 15 with a review of Stephen King's recent novel, The Cell. However, before we discuss the main topic, I would like to share some news with you. I received a press release about a new groundbreaking horror fiction charity anthology called The Vault of Punk Horror. After four years in the making, Punk Horror Press is set to release its groundbreaking horror fiction anthology, The Vault of Punk Horror, on August 31st, 2007. The trade paperback edition will feature an introduction by heavy metal icon Dee Snyder, as well as 15 stories by several award-winning and nominated authors, with proceeds benefiting the Alaskan Women's Network. The AWN supports a variety of causes that center around women's rights and one of the most dangerous places for women to live in the United States. Quote, Dee was excited by the cause and the lineup of fantastic authors. Underground favorites like newcomers Ryan C. Thomas and Cody Goodfellow turned in high-quality stories, along with Bram Stoker Award-winning short story authors Lisa Morton, Short Story Test, 2006, and John Shirley, Collection Black Butterflies, 1998. We are proud of the quality of this collection, which cover-to-cover will create a unique experience, said co-editor David Egrinoff. When editors David Agronoff and Gabriel Lanus first started this project four years ago, the concept was simple tales of horror fiction by punk authors set in the punk scene or featuring punk characters. Quote, we wanted to break some stereotypes and give back to both the punk and horror scenes, which have been positive outlet for both of our lives. We wanted stories of high literary quality at the same time. So unlike some anthologies that receive 500 or more submissions, we had to seek out authors and work with them to develop stories within the theme. In the end, we had to pinch ourselves when we read the book first time all the way through. It turned out fantastic, said Gabriel Lanus. The Vault of Punk Horror will hit the streets August 31st. For more information, check out punkhorror.com. Next, I want to share a couple of brief reviews of some of the horror films I've had the opportunity to see recently. First is Hostel. Hostel 2 came out recently, and I'm surprised I haven't seen it before now. Hostel starts slow. It sets up the relationships of the two friends and the man they meet and befriend. They go to a hostel which is supposedly filled with hot girls, and the real story begins. The women are there to lead unfortunate men to a sadistic hunting game. There's lots of gore, and while the story is not ingenious, the story is set up so slowly that makes the horrors unfold even worse. It's a decent film of the new breed of smart horror films like The Saw Generation. I did like it. I was surprised given the beginning and I thought it would kind of turn out to be a little cheesy, but I really did like the way it turned into this hunting game and it was interesting. Next, I recently saw a screening of Fido and we'll talk about it later in this podcast. 1408 was based on the Stephen King short story by the same name in Everything's Eventual, a book of 14 short stories. I saw this as a screening and was blown away. The concept of a haunted hotel room is not immediately appealing, but with the casting of John Cusack, I was intrigued. I loved the performance and identity and figured he could pull off this type of role that this film called for, and he did an excellent job. So few people could play a character that is essentially one big monologue. The layers of the story are well created, and there's a great twist that kept me interested. It's a really good adaptation of a King story. As we know, they're not all good. This one was excellent. It had some genuinely scary moments, and it was beautifully shot. Next, let's talk about Black Sheep. Again, I saw this as a screening. It's a New Zealand horror satire in the tradition of Shaun of the Dead. This one was hilarious. It's a group of genetically engineered sheep that become flesh-eating zombies. Brilliant concept. It was an excellent job. Not overly gory, but there's enough plot 
to keep you interested in the characters and there is enough blood to make the the gore fiends out there happy next silent hill it's a horror film based on a video game by the same name this one was a disappointment to me it was beautiful had a great setup i really liked the characters and the way they were developed and the beginning was very strong but then it just kind of transgressed into this watching someone play a video game sort of effect the characters ran around a lot and there was so little plot or any sort of development beyond that initial, let's say, 15 minutes. I kept waiting for development. I kept waiting for the film to establish some rules or even move a little bit faster. And then I would have liked it more. I liked the parallel realities. And did I mention it had incredible cinematography? It blew me away. And let's talk about Joshua. Now, this is not a horror. It's a thriller. This film is about a couple with a nine-year-old Joshua, and they have a new baby. Joshua immediately feels the strain of having a new baby in the house and is no longer the main object of affection for his parents. The actor who played Joshua, he did a very good job. His behavior becomes creepy and you see the family spiral out of control and you get the idea that it's really his doing, that this nine-year-old is controlling this family. It's a dark, dark film, strong performances by Sam Rockwell. And of course, the, the young boy who plays Joshua. It's been a while since I've seen a thriller this well done. It's highly influenced by Hitchcock, I think, because a lot of the film really doesn't show you what is happening. It, it leaves it to your mind. And it, it was very well done. Let's move on to the main topic, zombies. What's dead should stay dead. On the TV series Supernatural, in the season two episode called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Dean, the eldest brother who was revived from death through a deal with a demon, had this to say about returning from the dead. I never should have come back, Sam. It wasn't natural, and now look what's come of it. I was dead, and I should have stayed dead. So tell me, what could you possibly say to make it all right? In this episode, the Winchester brothers come across a zombie which they must kill as Dean struggles with his revival. A zombie is an animated human body devoid of a soul. In contemporary versions, there are generally reanimated or undead corpses, which are traditionally called ghouls. Stories of zombies originated in the Afro-Caribbean spiritual belief system of voodoo, where zombies are people who have had their soul taken by supernatural means or shamanic medicine and, lacking free will, are forced to work as uncomplaining slaves for a zombie master, typically on plantations. The soul could have left the body through the regular death rituals, but could also have been removed from a living body by the power of a sorcerer. As Lord of the Dead, Gade can restore a zombie to life by returning the soul. Other more macabre versions of zombies have become a staple for modern horror fiction, where they are brought back from the dead by supernatural or scientific means and eat the flesh of the living. They have very limited intelligence and may not be under anyone's direct control. This type of zombie, often referred to as a Romero zombie for the filmmaker that defined the concept, is archetypal in modern media and culture. But let's start with the history of zombie lore. According to the tenets of voodoo, a dead person can be revived by a boker, or voodoo sorcerer. Zombies remain under the control of the boker since they have no will of their own. Zombie is also another name for the voodoo snake god, Dambala Wigo, of Niger-Congo origin. It is akin to the Congo word Nzabi, which means God. There also exists within the voodoo tradition the zombie astral, which is a human soul captured by a boker and used to enhance the boker's power. In 1937, while researching folklore in, in Haiti, Zora Neale Hurston encountered the case of Felicia Felix Mentor, who had died and been buried in 1907 at the age of 29. 
Villagers believe they saw Felicia wandering the streets in a daze 30 years after her death, as well as claiming the same about several other people. Hurston pursued rumors that the affected persons were given powerful drugs, but she was unable to locate individuals willing to offer much information. She wrote, What is more, if science ever gets to the bottom of voodoo in Haiti and Africa, it will be found that some important medical secrets still unknown to medical science give it its power, rather than gestures of ceremony. Several decades later, Wade Davis, a Canadian ethnobotanist, presented a pharmacological case for zombies in two books, The Serpent and the Rainbow, 1985, and, and Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie, 1988. Davis traveled through Haiti in 1982 and as a result of his investigations claimed that a living person can be turned into a zombie by two special powders being entered into the bloodstream, usually via a wound. The first, coup de poudre, it was just French for powder strike, induced a death-like state because of tetrodotoxin, or TTX, its key ingredient. TTX is the same lethal toxin found in the Japanese delicacy fugu, or pufferfish. At near-lethal doses, it can leave a person in a state of near-death for several days, while the person continues to be conscious. The second powder, composed of dissociatives like datura, put the person in a zombie-like state where they can seem to have no will of their own. Davis also popularized the story of Clervius Narcis, who was claimed to have succumbed to this practice. There remains considerable skepticism about Davis's claims, and opinions remain divided as to the veracity of his work, although there is wide recognition among the Haitian people of the existence of the zombie drug. The voodoo religion being somewhat secretive in its practices and codes, it can be very difficult for a foreign scientist to validate or invalidate such claims. Others have discussed the contribution of the victim's own belief system, possibly leading to compliance with the attacker's will, causing psychogenetic or quasi-hysterical amnesia, catatonia, or other psychological disorders, which are later misinterpreted as a return from the dead. Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang further highlighted the link between social and cultural expectations and compulsion in the context of schizophrenia and other mental illnesses, suggesting that schizogenesis may account for some of the psychological aspects of zombification. So it's very interesting. Let's talk about zombies and folklore. In the Middle Ages, it was commonly believed that the souls of the dead could return to earth and haunt the living. The belief in revenants, someone who has returned from the dead, are well documented by contemporary European writers of the time. According to the Encyclopedia of Things That Never Were, particularly in France during the Middle Ages, the revenant rises from the dead, usually to avenge some crime committed against the entity, most likely a murder. The revenant usually took on the form of an emaciated corpse or skeletal human figure and wandered around graveyards at night. The Draugr of medieval Norse mythology were also believed to be corpses of warriors returned from the dead to attack the living. The zombie appears in several other cultures worldwide, including China, Japan, the Pacific, India, and Native Americans. The Epic of Gilgamesh of ancient Sumar includes the mention of zombies. Ishtar, in the Fury of Vengeance, says, Father, give me the Bull of Heaven so he can kill Gilgamesh in his dwelling. If you do not give me the Bull of Heaven, I will knock down the gates of the netherworld. I will smash the doorposts and leave the doors flat down, and will let the dead go up to eat the living, and the dead will outnumber the living. And there are different types of zombies, as commonly seen in today's culture, specifically in films. There are really eight different types of zombies. One, toxic zombies. These are brought back by radiation, chemical, genetic manipulation, usually flesh-eating. This is by far the most common zombie portrayed in films. Quite often, the government has something to do with the cause of this. 
movie examples, Night of the Living Dead from 1968, Romero's original, still the best, discussed in episode number one, Fido, the 2007 horror comedy, Black Sheep, 2007 horror comedy from New Zealand, both mentioned earlier. The second are demon zombies. These are reanimated by demon, devil, or other spirit. Movie examples, Evil Dead, the 1981 horror comedy, and Pet Cemetery, 1989, based on the Stephen King novel. Number three are voodoo or black magic zombies. These are brought back by Hungin or Bokar, a voodoo master. Movie examples, white zombie. Four, disease zombies. This is a vague type spread by an infection such as the bite of a Sumatran rat, monkey. Examples, Dead Alive, 1983 horror comedy. Resident Evil, 2002, with sequels in 2004 and 2007, based on the video game of the same name. And I would put down Shaun of the Dead here from 2004. It's a romantic comedy with zombies. Here, although they do not reveal the cause of the zombies, except to say that there's a sickness going around. Number five, unsettled zombies. They return because of some unfinished business of some sort, usually revenge or love. Movie examples, My Boyfriend's Back, Creep Shows, Water Zombies, and Cemetery Man from 1996. It's a horror comedy. Number six, alien zombies. These are brought back by aliens, usually to serve them in taking over the earth. Movie examples, Alien Dead and Slither from 2005 horror comedy. Number seven, techno zombies. They're reanimated by technology, implanting a computer chip in the brain, etc. Movie example, Deadly Friend. And number eight, electric zombies. These are brought back by a shock from electricity of some sort. And movie example, Dead Heat. So let's talk about the history of zombies in popular culture. Zombies are very popular in horror and fantasy-themed entertainment. They are typically depicted as mindless, shambling, decaying corpses with a hunger for human flesh. Fictional zombies have a long history in Western culture dating back to the 1600s and many evolutions of the concept from literature to films and beyond. Zombies have appeared in countless films starting in 1932 with the release of White Zombie. White Zombie is an American horror film, as I said, was released in 1932. It's believed to be the first film to deal with zombies and is indeed often described as the first zombie film. It's also in public domain and you can find it on the internet, such as the as archive.com, which is the archive internet database, and it's there in entirety. You can download it and watch it. Many factors contribute to White Zombie's cult film status more than seven decades later. It was independently produced, not a product of a major studio like Universal, which made up most of the best-known early horror films. It stars Bela Lugosi in one of his top performances and a unique and visually striking makeup. The quality of its performances is the subject of much debate, but many horror film historians blaming the romantic leads in part for their overall ambivalence toward the film, but others crediting the disparate acting styles as contributing to the film's strange, dreamlike quality. Unlike most other popular horror films, White Zombie's cast is made up almost entirely of actors who today are not popularly, popularly known for other performances. This feature helps to spotlight Lugosi, the most notable exception, and add to the film's otherworldliness. So the plot summary is that the script features a young couple in Haiti, Neil Parker, played by John Heron, and Madeline Short, played by Madge Bellamy, who have been invited by a casual acquaintance, Charles Beaumont, played by Robert Fraser, to come to his plantation to be married. Beaumont, however, is actually in love with Madeline and hopes to persuade her to become his wife instead. Rebuffed, he approaches white or local white voodoo master Murder Legendra, played by Lugosi, who temporarily turns her into a zombie, having her declared dead, send Neil back to the States in mourning, and then revive her so he can woo her anew. 
Murder, however, has his own plans for the young lady and for Beaumont. So let's review Fido from 2007. Now, I saw this Canadian film as a screening a couple months ago and loved it. Rotten Tomatoes describes it as, quote, lying somewhere between Pleasantville and Night of the Living Dead. Fido is a zombie buddy pick love story set in a picture-perfect technicolored 1950s suburb. And they are spot on. When the Earth passed through a cloud of space dust, which reanimated the dead and caused them to eat the living, known as the Great Zombie War. After the war, survivors surrounded the towns and cities by security fences and alarms that keep the last of the free-roaming zombies out. This is where Zomcom comes in. It's a corporation heavily invested in zombies. They serve two purposes. One, to protect the citizens from wild zombies, and two, domesticating zombies with control collars. These collars cause the zombies to lose their urge to feed on flesh and make them controllable. So controllable that ordinary people now use them as servants and pets. The movie follows a young boy named Timmy, played by Kaysun Ray, who develops a friendship with the zombie, played by Billy Connolly. His mother purchases to impress the new neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Bottoms, when she finds out that Mr. Bottoms, played by Henry Zerny, just happens to be head of Zomcom itself. Timmy names his new friend Fido and comes to confirm what he has always secretly suspected, that zombies can have feelings too. Timmy's mom, Helen, played by Carrie Ann Moss, who, as an escape from her rude zombie-phobic husband, played by Dylan Baker, develops some very human feelings for Fido. The best part about Fido are the zombies themselves, with Billy Connolly giving a great performance as Fido. Even though he's never given an opportunity to speak, Connolly convincingly comes across as kind and life-loving despite his zombiness. In creating the look of the 1950s, the film boasts impressive bright colors, somewhat technicolor, and neat furniture design. This, combined with elaborate costumes, provides a surreal backdrop for a fantastical plot. This is a horror film, after all, and although it maintains a satirical tone throughout, we are thrown a severed limb whenever things risk getting too weepy and too human. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 66% fresh. Among the cream of the crop, it has a 73%, or somehow changed the storyline to be a little bit less contrived. However, I really did like it, and I, although I was slightly disappointed with it because of the high hype, I think that is very well done and one of the better horror films to come out of the last decade. So I would recommend if you haven't seen it, go out and see it because it is definitely going to be a classic. The Rage Virus, when an infected chimpanzee bites an animal rights activist attempting to free it from a laboratory. 28 days later, a bicycle courier named Jim, played by Cillian Murphy, awakens from a coma and upon leaving the deserted hospital, he discovers that London is deserted. He is saved from some of the infected by two survivors, Selena and Mark, and seek refuge in their hideout in a section of the London Underground. Jim learns that while he was comatose, a virus spread uncontrollably among the populace, turning them into vicious, mindless, blood-spewing monsters, referred to as the infected, resulting in societal collapse, possibly on a global scale. The virus is spread through blood, and the transformation occurs within seconds. They are joined by others, and then they hear a pre-recorded radio broadcast transmitted by soldiers at a blockade near Manchester that claim to have the answer to infection. They decide to head to Manchester due to dwindling supplies. The soldiers inhabit a fortified mansion under the command of Major Henry West, and Jim learns that West's answer to infection entails waiting for the infected to starve to death while giving hope of community survival by repopulating within the small group. Jim attempts escape with Selena and Hannah, but is subdued with the soldiers, and led to a force to be killed alongside a condemned soldier. 
Escaping his captors, Jim spots a passenger airliner flying overhead and lures West and other soldiers out of the haven by sounding a siren. After killing West's subordinate, Jim dashes back to the mansion to rescue Selena and Hannah. Jim releases an infected soldier that West had kept chained, and the soldier enters the mansion, killing and infecting most of the soldiers, after which Jim slays the remaining soldiers. Another 28 days later, the infected are dying of starvation. Selena, Hannah, and Jim, who is recovering from the bullet wound, have taken refuge in a remote cottage. With huge cloth banners that read hello, they attempt to signal a passing aircraft previously observed flying overhead. Selena wonders aloud, do you think he saw us this time? On the DVD commentary, Boyle and Garland frequently call it a post-apocalyptic horror and zombie film, commenting on scenes that were specific references to Romero's original Dead trilogy. However, during the original marketing of the film, Boyle decided to just distance the film from such labels. Although 28 Days Later is usually included in the zombie genre, the infected portrayed in the film fit only certain aspects of the traditional zombie archetype. While zombies are generally slow, unintelligent, hungry for human flesh, and almost universally undead, the infected are merely living, living human beings overcome with senseless rage brought on by a highly infectious virus. They can be killed like any other human being and possess no superhuman abilities. At the same time, the infected demonstrate several zombie-like characteristics, including a bite-transmitted condition that results at the affected individual's loss of personality, impaired cognitive function, murderous rage, discolored eyes, and a powerful urge to spread the condition. Although highly aggressive, they do not fight amongst themselves, much like traditional zombies. In the review by Steve Head for IGN.com on June 26, 2003, he says, Director Danny Boyle has crafted a terrific film, not merely because it ebbs and flows at the right pace and almost every scene is riveting, but because of its intensity. 28 Days Later is absolutely intense. The frenzied attacks of the infected are so jarringly crashed into the screen that almost every time one of these zombies enters the frame, the scene goes nuts. Plus, the editing through these sequences is plain trippy. However, there is one point during a particularly nasty attack at a makeshift military compound where I was left to wonder if it was all too much and maybe a bit too divertive from the plot. He gives the film four out of five stars. The link will be in the show notes. I am sort of torn about 28 Days Later. I liked it, but at the same time, I thought that it moved a bit too strangely. You had moments that were almost shocking, and then you had moments where they probably could have edited more out. And the song of the night tonight is August Moon by Dylan in the Movies. It's brought to you by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Enjoy!
That's it for this episode, but the next episode is a continuation of this topic in which I'll discuss Stephen King's novel, The Cell. I hope you're enjoying your summer. It is Labor Day weekend after all. I apologize I didn't get these episodes out sooner. However, I have six or seven new ones in the works, so I hope to release them at least once a month, and thanks for listening. Take care, and thank you for continuing on, even though I've been a little spotty with getting these released. I appreciate any comments or topic suggestions. Just email me. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.